This past summer, one of our sons, who happened to lead worship today, and his wife and two children visited our missionaries in Italy in order to speak there over a number of weeks, learn how they're doing, and encourage them. While they were there, they had a chance to leave that town and take a train to Venice, the famous medieval city that is so beautiful. And I heard from them about the things they planned to do. They would like to do A and C, B and experience C. But they had a two-year-old. And so my understanding is that at least at certain parts of the time that were just prime visitation time, basically they threw a few seeds to the pigeons and went back to the hotel room. Now, last week, we were in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 10. Today, we're in 11. And this week, I was reading a book by one of my favorite authors, commentator, on the book of 1 Kings. And he had a disappointment, too, where he had to make a sudden plan B instead of a plan A. He said, when I started this book, I wanted to entitle it The Power and the Glory. But I hadn't worked very far into it before I realized I had to entitle it The Wisdom and the Folly. Because last week, we saw the height that Israel ever attained, God's people in the Old Testament, under the reign of Solomon. But I'm sorry to say today, we must turn the page to chapter 11. We'll begin reading the first seven verses, beginning with verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not marry them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, that is, legal wives of a second status, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to Yahweh his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He did not follow Yahweh completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Kamosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. In English... In English, in the New International Version, the first word is king. But in Hebrew, the first word of this chapter is but. That is meant as a literary device 
to slap us in the face for first-time readers going through 1 Kings after reading about the power and the glory. They are now going to read about the wisdom and the folly. It's meant to hit us like a train. The wisest man in the world is now going to become a fool. He has plummeted off the mountain of glory. The writer of three books of the Bible must now be written about in the Bible in the most humiliating way. And it is due to his drift away from God. What was the nature of his drift? We read in verse 4, When Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart to other gods, to other religions. Now, in those days, other religions meant physical idols of metal and stone, by which people, by offering certain offerings and being present, could manipulate the gods to give them rain and good crops and victory in war and things like this. The gods of these other religions were like human beings at their worst. Someone has called them little godlets. That's exactly what they were. The gods of the nations were petty, demanding, violent, vengeful. They demanded crass, degrading worship. Those other religions were the reason that the Canaanites were expelled when the Israelites were given the land. It's because they worshipped sickening gods, and they worshipped them by sickening practices in their services. The Bible likens the worship of these other gods to several things. One of them is it likens other religions as adultery. That is, taking a lover that is not your spouse. The Jews have been chosen by God of all the people on the earth, of course, to be his own chosen people. And now they were throwing him off for another lover, but not just for any lover. He imagines them as engaging in prostitution, that is, cheating on your spouse through something cheap and tawdry. The Bible also likens other religions in the Old Testament to slandering God's reputation or stealing his reputation. It does so in the New Testament as well. That is, he likens the worship of other gods to an attempt, think about this, to change God's very identity, to give his honor to someone else when he has lavished goodness upon us. Picture someone, maybe picture yourself if you're literary, if you like to write, slaving over a novel for several years. You've thought about it. You've researched it. You've been up endless nights on chapters you're stuck on. And finally, you have the manuscript and it's done. And somehow, somebody gets a hold of your manuscript, intimidates you into staying quiet, and publishes it as his or her own. There you see your book in all its grandeur in the bookstore with the name of someone else at the bottom. This is exactly what the worship of other gods does. For look around at everything that God has done, the beauty of this snow falling as we speak. And here you have God's name being scratched out and the name of some other detestable godlet being written on the bottom of the novel. Since Solomon had experienced such goodness... What were the early steps that began him down the path toward misery for himself and devastation for his country and doubtless bitter regrets at the end of his life? How did he get from there 
to hear. Well, early on, I think we must all agree that Solomon would never dream of worshiping other gods. As I say, he wrote in the Bible the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. He built the most magnificent temple in the world to the God of Israel. And when he came for the dedication, he prayed the most magnificent prayer in the entire Old Testament. And as he said, Amen, Jehovah sent fire down from heaven to burn the sacrifice. And the glory of God filled the temple so much that the priests could not bear it and were not even able to go in there. Think if we had a worship service that had that kind of visible display of God's presence, what it would mean. Then, that night, God appeared to Solomon. I'm sorry, it was later at at Gibeon when he went to sacrifice and thanked God for putting him on the throne. God appeared to him in a dream at night. And he said, Solomon, ask me anything and I will give it to you. It's almost like a movie with Aladdin and a genie pops out. It's hard to believe. God said, I will give you anything. Riches, wealth, honor, wisdom. And Solomon said, my goodness, this has worked out so well. I, I asked for wisdom, and God gave me not only wisdom, but riches, wealth, and honor, more than anybody on the face of the planet. And so as Solomon, in his early years, is thinking about what God's done for him, doubtless he thinks like this, my goodness, God gave me wisdom I did not have before. I remember that time I was on the throne and the two prostitutes came and one with a dead baby and one with a live baby and nobody knew who was who and they were both arguing, the live baby's mine, no, the live baby's mine. And on the spot, I just knew what to say. I had never been like that before. It just poured out of my head. And then, doubtless, he said to himself in his early years, ideas for running a country pour into my head like water in a faucet. I can't even turn it off. Just unbidden. I can't help but think of business strategies that always work out, of trade relations that are to my maximum benefit of my country. I think of music to compose. I think of literature to write. I think of buildings to design. I think of the banquets I give. I think of the dignitaries that I receive. Gold is just, as it were, spilling out the windows, the buildings, the country I rule. And so doubtless in his early years, when Solomon thought of the goddess Ashtaroth of the Sidonians, he thought, she is hideous. And doubtless when he thought of Moloch, the Ammonite god, he thought, that god is repulsive. I am a worshiper of Yahweh, Jehovah, the maker of heaven and earth. But Satan's door into Solomon's heart came in the form of very attractive doorkeepers. Here is how he started to worship other gods. He said to himself, boy, those other gods are repulsive. But I'll tell you what's not repulsive. I remember that delegation last week from Sidon, and I remember that Sidonian princess in the entourage. And my goodness, just days earlier, I remember the delegation from Ammon, and I remember that Ammonite's official's daughter. My. And I remember that Moabite noble's niece. My goodness, did you folks see them? Now, let me clarify here, because here it is easy 
to wipe Solomon off in a way that's not biblical or accurate. God made Solomon a man. God gave him the tendency to notice beauty. God gave him the desire to have a lovely woman. God gave him the inclination to pursue an attractive girl. Beauty is good. Physical charms are good. God did not attend for a man and woman endlessly just to shake hands and play miniature golf. So Song of Solomon's was written by Solomon. It comprises eight chapters that celebrate love. The love, yes, of companionship and of words, but also of all the pleasures enjoyed in private. And God inspired Solomon to write in Proverbs, quote, May your wife be like a graceful deer. May her body satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated by her love. He's speaking of things private and personal and physical. And even multiple marriages were not forbidden in the Old Testament time, although they weren't God's highest and best. But what was forbidden was the amassing by the king of many wives. Deuteronomy 17, we read, When you come into the land and you have a king, the king must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. And yet Solomon, we read in this chapter, had an enormous harem, 700 wives, 300 concubines, still legal wives, but of a lesser status. The idea behind amassing these, there are probably several ideas, but one of them, a significant one that the Bible does not shy away from, is the desire for endless variety. Solomon could not have a real relationship with most of these women. Most of these women were there for only one thing, to, as it were, surf the net every day to see who I will end up with in the evening. So it begins to think, I wonder what it's like to be with concubine number 57. Let's find out Thursday. I wonder what it's like to be with wife number 523. Let's find out next Tuesday. I never met most of these women, but I recall seeing them. And he began to think about little else. What God had intended as pleasurable diversion with a spouse to to whom he was highly committed, it became a dominant obsession for him. This led to the second forbidden thing. The Bible had forbidden not just many wives, but the Bible had forbidden foreign wives to the men of Israel and especially to the king. We read in verse 1 of our chapter, Solomon, King Solomon loved many foreign women. You may recall that on the eve of the invasion of Canaan by the Jewish people before they crossed the Jordan River and so forth, as the book of Deuteronomy came about, we read that here is what God said to the people through Moses. Do not intermarry with these people or take their daughters, for they will turn you away from following me to serve other gods. That is, if you marry women from these cultures, 
They won't just get you to do certain things that are wrong. They will lure who you are on the inside away from Yahweh. Five times in verses 2, 3, and 4, the word heart is used. Only four times in the NIV, but it's five times in the original. In other words, God is concerned of what's going on, not just in the affections, because in American English, we tend to use the word heart just for what we feel. But in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew culture, the word heart meant one's emotions, but also one's thoughts, intellect, and also one's will. And so one's heart is what you think about, what you thirst for, and what you pursue. He says, these things will be drawn away from God to other gods if you marry these women. So verse 3 says, literally, his wives turned his heart. Now, not all farm women were forbidden, but Canaanites were, and certain other nations that are mentioned in this chapter. Now, doubtless, when Solomon first started amassing wives and concubines, it was primarily to make political alliances. That was very common in the Old Testament era. And most scholars think, in verse 1, when it says that, that Solomon married Pharaoh, that that was legitimate marriage. Moses had married a Midianite before Midian turned so bad. Joseph had married an Egyptian girl. God did not frown on that. No, it was these particular ones that he said um, not to marry. And so when Solomon began amassing wives, as I say, it was largely for political purposes. That happened often. You know, your country and my country have some tension. So, uh, you know, your daughter comes and marries my son or vice versa. And that way, I'm not going to go to war with you because my daughter would be in jeopardy. You're not going to go to war with me. There's a sealing of the deal. It's sort of like a blood covenant, as it were. And so that's why we read that of the, the 700 wives, most of them were wives of, quote, royal birth. That, that is literally, they were princesses. They were from the royal families of other nations. This was political. They were the daughters of neighboring kings and princes and sheiks of the desert and influential families. But soon, these women began to turn his head. We read in verse 2, he held fast to them in love. Not only that he loved them, but he held fast to them. The Jerusalem Bible puts it well. He was deeply attached to them. In fact, the same word is used in the book of 1 Samuel during the war when the Philistines are fighting with Saul and his son Jonathan and eventually kill him. Out of all the soldiers there, they, they do not mess with anybody else. They make a beeline for the king. And it says the Philistines, quote, pressed hard after Saul and his sons. That's the same word. Solomon pressing hard after these women. After long days of study, after long hours of court life, after receiving dignitaries and and reviewing legal cases, and writing, and philosophizing, he rushes back to the palace, and all he can think about is the endless line of foreign females in his stable. And it's all legal. I think the way it went must have been something like this. These wives from other countries, and thus other religions, would say things like this. Solomon, we've got to admit, you are the wisest person we've ever seen. You are so smart. And doubtless, your God, Yahweh, has made you smart. That's a good thing. But, but Solomon, can't I worship while I'm here in Jerusalem? Can't I worship the God of my homeland? 
Surely that can't be a threat to you. I mean, the worship of my God was my family's culture. It's what gives me comfort. It's what makes me happy. It's what I'm familiar with. You don't necessarily need to participate yourself, but can you not build me a chapel? And so we read in verse 7 and 8, on the hill east of Jerusalem, that is in the shadow of the temple of Jehovah, Solomon built a high place for Kamosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And then I suspect that what happened as time went on, <clears throat> the women said, Solomon, yes, Yahweh is fine. He's obviously a great god. But, but no other deity in the world demands exclusive worship from his worshipers. All deities allow the worship of other gods too, but they demand that you also worship them. Surely you are enlightened in your great wisdom to accommodate both the worship of Jehovah and the worship of some other god. If you love me, if you really love me, come see how I worship. I want you to know that part of me. I don't want to go to church alone. And so, with a soft voice and smooth speech, and with a room full of pleasant memories, each one of them, she takes him by the hand and little by little leads him to the slaughter to abandon God in a way that years earlier he never dreamed that he could. And so now we come to the part of the chapter where God pronounces his verdict, beginning now with verse 9. Now the Lord, Yahweh, became angry with Solomon because his head had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although God had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So Yahweh said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give your son one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. The words of verse 9, I think, may be shocking to many modern Christians who aren't accustomed to reading the Bible. It says that Yahweh became angry with Solomon. That is, Yahweh became angry with with one of his followers. That is, Yahweh became angry with a person who today we would say was a Christian, who was a saved person. Some people believe that love and anger are incompatible. But if you have children, you know that's not true. Is it not? You dearly love this little kid. And you are incensed by what they just did or said or how they've been acting. 
but you still love them. Now, God loves Solomon. God has said a generation earlier to Solomon's father, David, in 2 Samuel 7, your son will be king. When he does wrong, I will punish him, but my love will never be taken from him. God will punish because he is jealous. A man or a woman whose spouse has been unfaithful and feels nothing swelling up inside them, something is wrong. That anger comes from a jealous love that is good. Solomon will not lose his salvation, but he will lose God's closeness, God's favor, and the sense of God's smile. For he has sinned so publicly and leading a whole nation down the path to hell. Solomon will lose the comfort of his religion, the security of the closeness of a heavenly father. Solomon will lose some of his honor, his wealth. Eventually, he will lose his family. They will lose their home. Sometimes, if things are serious enough, a person who drifts from God so seriously will lose everything of value in this life and sometimes even lose their lives early. So the Bible goes on to talk about exactly what was the discipline of Solomon that God levied. We don't have time to read verses 14 to 43, but I'm going to summarize them briefly for you. You may recall that Solomon ruled vast area. He ruled an area that is dark green, which is the property that Israel proper owned, its 12 tribes, and the light green are the surrounding nations that were hostile, that David, his father, conquered and brought into subjection, and now they paid tribute. And so Solomon was at peace all the way from deep in the south to high in the north to Euphrates River. The part at the top of the map that's in dotted lines is because the part up there uh, was uh, Hamath was not actually subdued by David. It didn't need to be subdued. The king of Hamath saw where things were going and sent all kinds of treasures to David and says, I'm glad you're here. Here's a gift. Basically, I'm your, I'm your, your lesser. Can we have friendly relationships? But now, and, and now, we also learned last week that Solomon realized after he took the throne that Israel was positioned for unique trade in the world. Trade from countries northwest, northeast, far to the east, far to the south, far to the west and the southwest. All those countries needed by land to pass through Israel to trade with anybody anywhere. And so Solomon was the middleman in the center of it all who was able to amass huge amounts of wealth. But now we read in verses 14, 20, 14 to 22, we read this in verse 14. Then Yahweh raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. Now, as I say, we can't read the whole story, but here is the summary. This deals with the nation just to the south of Israel. It is ruled by Israel. Edom, the slide will show, was critical to Solomon's trade. Do you see at the bottom the copper mines that are in Edom? That is the reason Solomon was able to amass so much bronze for the temple of God that couldn't even be measured because bronze um, uh, is comprised of copper plus tin. 
And also, do you see the ship at the bottom? That body of water is the Gulf of Akbar. It's long and narrow, and it leads down into the Red Sea. And the Red Sea leads into the Arabian Ocean. And the Arabian Ocean leads into the Indian Ocean. And that is why Solomon had ships that could go as far as the Far East, the ports of India, and all around Asia, in order to bring back exotic things. This was his ticket, his open door, to trade internationally on the water. Now, David, his father, had devastated Edom in war when they fought. And during that war, in one of the areas, there was a young boy from the royal family named Hadad. Hadad had some officials that wanted to protect him, so they swooped him up and they fled away from all the disaster and they fled to Egypt. In Egypt, Pharaoh welcomed him as being of a royal family from another country and he took him into the palace and he made him as it were his own son. Pharaoh gave to Hadad as a wife the sister of Pharaoh's top queen. And so Hadad had it made in Egypt, but it burned in his soul that his homeland was under some foreign Jewish people. Now, by Solomon's day, this young Hadad had grown up and he asked Pharaoh for permission to go back to Edom. He goes back to Edom to start trying to rule. And now he causes enormous trouble to Solomon and there are revolts and difficulties everywhere. Israel is still over Edom, but Hadad is a guerrilla fighter and he's going to make things miserable. And he threatens all the payment of tribute from Edom and he threatens all the trade that Solomon would get. The, the South is a door that is closing. Now, in verses 23 to 25, God also disciplines Solomon in the north through a man named Rezon, R-E-Z-O-N, of the country of Aram. Here's how this works. Verse 23 says, And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezon, son of Eliada. As I say, this deals with a nation to the north, Aram. It's often called Syria instead. It's ruled by Israel. That's why we have it in light green. Aram is critical to Solomon's trade. All the trade routes coming in by land from the northeast, east, west, they all come through Aram to get to Israel. So David, Solomon's father, had conquered Aram. But a young warrior named Rezon had escaped death and out in the desert with a band of adventurers. He roamed, he built up his military strength, he was a fierce fighter, and he came back and he took over the city of Damascus, which was just a two-bit town, backwater back then, and he built it into a mighty city. And now he turned hostile to Israel. Israel still rules Aram theoretically, but the tribute that they send and the trade that they send are in danger, and there's trouble all in Aram. And now comes the third and last way that our chapter talks about, at least our section talks about God disciplining Solomon. And this is in verses 26 to 40. And this is the discipline that came not from the north, not from the south, but right in the dead of Israel. Verse 26, also Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, rebelled against King Solomon. He was one of Solomon's officials. My goodness. He's an Israelite. He oversees Solomon's building projects. 
He's the one over the forced labor where Solomon grabs people from all over the country and makes them build his buildings, and sometimes people resent it, and Jeroboam resented it. But God had said to Solomon, because of your acting this way, I am going to tear your kingdom away from you. I am going to give it to one of your subordinates. This Jeroboam, an Israelite, is that subordinate. Jeroboam is going to lead a revolt, and thus David's empire is fraying at the edges. There's trouble in the south. There's trouble in the north. There's trouble internally from Jeroboam. Jeroboam's revolt is going to become far worse than anything Edom or Aram can throw at him. Jeroboam's revolt is going to split the nation in two in the days of Solomon's son, which we will cover next week. So, what are we to draw from this? Ah, here's where I feel the most inadequate love to take a whole hour, a whole day to do this. But just a few thoughts. What are we to think when we read this? Well, the first lesson that just jumps at at the page at you is that drift from God is deceitful because it tends to happen gradually. We know that occasionally there was a person who has been lily white and then one day they up and do enormously wicked things. But in general, people are rebelling in their hearts in small, compromising ways long before they rebel with their hands or their feet. And it happens over time. And to me, the scariest verse in this entire chapter is verse 4. As Solomon grew Old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. You would think a man who has walked with God most all his life is safe. Now he can coast. He's climbed a spiritual mountain, as it were, and now he's on a flat table land, and he's okay as long as he doesn't do something stupid. And while he's doing it, he thinks he's just fine. One of the commentators told the story of John F. Kennedy, the president, his mother, Rose. Rose Kennedy used to be driven around Washington, D.C. in a large limousine by a chauffeur. She loved to read the newspaper as she was riding. And as she's riding, when she was done with the newspaper, she'd hit the button, down goes the window, out the window goes the newspaper. Now the chauffeur would say to her, uh, Mrs. Kennedy, uh, we're liable to get fined. And she would respond to the chauffeur, but I can't remember his name, I'll call him Bill, but Bill... They know who we are. This is exactly the principle we're talking about. Privilege, the privilege of age, the privilege of past accomplishments, the privilege of having amassed a lot of work in favor of the Lord of the universe makes one put one's defenses down, makes one grow tired. Do you remember President Jimmy Carter? At least hearing about him, some of you. Do you remember that he had, he was one of three children. His parents raised him. He became president of the United States. They were tough on him. They disciplined him. They made sure he did his homework. They made sure he walked the straight and narrow and so forth. And he excelled. As I say, he became the ruler of the United States. He had a sister named Ruth, Ruth Staple, Carter Stapleton. She became an author. She became a public speaker. She became a nationally known figure for advocating for certain causes and so forth. But Jimmy... And Ruth had a brother, and his name was Billy, Billy Carter. 
And Billy Carter was the biggest embarrassment to the Democratic Party that could possibly be during those years. Billy Carter would be, you know, because he was the brother of a president, uh, the cameras were always there, the media was intensely interested in him, and Billy Carter would be filmed coming out of his, his ramshackle house with his white beater t-shirt on and a can of beer uh, belching into the microphones and, and just saying whatever came to his foolish head. And uh, he once said this, you know, he said, I can't imitate his accent. It, it, it added to it, believe me. Uh, uh, Billy said, you know, you know, when Jimmy was around, you know, mom and daddy, mommy and daddy, they were just really tough on him and they really made him jump through the hoops. And you know, when Ruth came around, mommy and daddy, they were really disciplined her and they were tough on her and they raised her well and, they, and so forth. But for me, <laughs> you know, by the time I came around, they were tired. <laughs> it was horrible. People would just go like this. Here are Billy's parents when they are old, too tired to maintain where they were when they were young. And it had a huge national implications. Oh, what implications for life. I, churches often focus, as they should, a great deal on children's ministry, on youth ministry, young singles, young married people. It's, it's an enormously important investment. But those of you with gray hair out there, You are in danger as well if you let your guard down because this life is a war and it doesn't stop when you are old. A second lesson seems to me to be this. Drifting from God has a domino effect. You know the domino effect. Every now and then, maybe you'll see a, a video on YouTube or something where some kid takes, you know, 16,000 dominoes in a complicated pattern, stands them all up, blows on the first one, and down they all go. And so we see in the life of Solomon, one sin that leads to another that leads to another. I didn't have time to go into the various things, I think, that, that some of the things that started where he was, but just the few things we looked into today. We can see that sin is never still. He first for political reasons that were probably understandable in certain ways, amassed wives, foreign wives, many wives. But his many wives pulled his heart away. And then when he went after foreign wives, they pulled his his heart away further. And so he grew to be hopelessly lustful because he couldn't turn anywhere. He was not subject to the sight of these women. And then he finally yields to the idolatry and the worship of false gods when he never dreamed that he would worship idols. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, quote, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's from 1 Corinthians 10. Here is how one of the old Puritans from the 1600s put it. He said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And it is true. Third lesson that we learn from this chapter is that it matters who we are close to. Solomon had the people who were to be the closest in the world to him, his wives, who were worshipers of idols. And the Bible cautions against this so heavily. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company affects good morals. Or here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship can light have 
with darkness. He's talking not about being friends with unbelievers. He says in 1 Corinthians, if you tried to stay away from unbelievers, you'd have to go out of the world. No, no. He says, I'm talking about being yoked. He's picturing animals pulling a heavy cart, maybe having an ox attached to a mule to pull together. It's just not going to work well. And so he's talking about things, for instance, like business partnerships, not where you buy from this person and they buy from you. But when you go into business together with someone whose heart is not God, and eventually you have to make business decisions, which very possibly you are going to have to compromise or have real trouble with. But even more than, say, business partnerships or something like that, he is talking about dating and marriage. I was a youth director in four different churches in four different states before I became a pastor here. And one of the things I noticed is the sadly higher than you would wish number of serious Christian people, kids raised in good families, church-going Bible-reading kids, dating, regularly dating, kids who were not professing believers in Jesus Christ. We used to call it missionary dating. And the idea is that missionary dating often leads to missionary weddings. And that is a recipe for heartache, endless heartache. Some of you who are followers of Jesus Christ know, folks, or perhaps yourself can attest to that, that it's hard. Maybe if someone isn't thinking at the time we're in love, love can conquer all, but it can't conquer all because light and darkness, the worship of God and the non-worship of God cannot exist together. Finally, the lesson is this. Where there is repentance, mercy trumps sin and discipline. Where there's repentance, mercy trumps sin and discipline. You recall that first Kings started with the word in Hebrew, but King Solomon, after all the glory, but he went south. There's a verse in the New Testament, though, that's like a bookend of that. Here's the Old Testament. Solomon did so well, but in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 4, we have this little paragraph. You were dead in your transgressions. You used to be pawns of the evil forces of this world. You used to be under the wrath of God. Ephesians 2.4 But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Ah, grace for the worst of sinners. You say, yeah, but you said that mercy trumps sin and discipline where there's repentance. And you read that chapter and it doesn't say anything about Solomon repenting. No, it doesn't. And there are certainly scholars who do not think that Solomon showed any repentance. But I have to go with those who think that there's a hint of it elsewhere in the Old Testament, and that's in the book of Ecclesiastes. Have you read Ecclesiastes? I know many of you have. Solomon wrote the book, and it seems fairly clear that he wrote it at the end of his life, 
And the purpose of the book goes along these lines. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, I want you to know that I, in wisdom, I searched everything possible that this life could offer, and here's what I concluded. Chapter 2, verse 10, During my reign, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 8 of Ecclesiastes, I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of men. Multiple women. And at the end of the book, he says, having examined everything in life that life could alter, here is my conclusion. Chapter 12, verse 13. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. He doesn't just mean be afraid of him. Although it's appropriate if if you're rebelling against him. He means respect him. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I propose to you that Solomon died sad. I propose that Solomon died with regrets. But I propose to you that Solomon died forgiven and that he repented. How could he repent if his heart was so twisted and bent in the wrong way. He could repent, folks, because his repentance ultimately was not up to him. His repentance ultimately was based on the mercy of Jesus Christ to give him repentance. Solomon gave him the grace to repent. And why did he do it? Well, we end by looking at our chapter 11. Again, verse 11. God says, Solomon... I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you. I will give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son, but I will not even tear the whole kingdom from him. But I will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant. And here is the phrase. And for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Oh, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that I have chosen a man named David. I have said that one of his descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. I have said that he will sit on a throne in Jerusalem. For that is the place where my temple is. That is the place where sacrifices for sin are offered to me. And it is from Jerusalem, from Zion, from that temple that I can forgive sins because I am A merciful God. And I receive sacrifices that pay for sin. And so he is saying that Jerusalem is going to stand, even though you have sinned and you'll lose most of the country. It'll stand because I promised a descendant of David on the throne. It'll stand because I have promised that a Messiah will come to that throne. It will stand, although God didn't use the words right here, because Jesus, the son of David, will come who will wash away even the worst of sins. And that is why one day as Jesus stood before a crowd who desperately needed forgiveness and desperately needed salvation, he pointed to himself and he said, someone greater than Solomon is here. Can we bow our heads 
and think about these things. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction, please? Now, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore the persevering grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.